From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. My dad's a total stud. He's one of my idols in my life. I'm incredibly impressed. Came over here when I was 15, came through Ellis Island, had nothing. Where'd he, where'd he come from he had, again? Ellis, he came from uh, Palestine, when Palestine was a country, now Israel. He, uh, like I said, came through Ellis Island at 15, had to get to his sponsor family in California, hopped trains all the way across the country, which you can imagine the train system now trying to get across the country. I just it, took the train, that's another conversation. <laughs> it was, I'm sure it was a lot worse back then when he did it 50, 50 some years ago. Maybe not um, much. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it hasn't improved that much, you're probably right. Uh, but he, he had 60 bucks. Um, that was all he had. He had 60 bucks and uh, made his way across country and then came, came and got a college degree, got a master's degree, ended up being, you know, vice principal of school, president of the school board. So incredibly accomplished guy, but again, never made any excuses, just put his head down and got it done. So how did that help you in life growing up the son of an immigrant? It's uh, ambiguity is what, um, is what I learned um, growing up in the military, it's it that's a, that's a skill that you have to have in life. Is you, you never know what's going to come next necessarily, so figure it out when it comes. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad obviously demonstrated that. And I don't know that he was um, purposeful or intentional necessarily about teaching that. I don't remember that word ever being used, but it was kind of like hey, you, you never have any excuse for anything. You just need to go work hard and figure it out and get it done. Okay, we'll do that, Dad. And he was he was hard on us. So was Mom. They were both hard on us. Um, they had high expectations. Hard or firm? They were firm. Yeah, hard's probably the wrong word. They were firm. They had high expectations for mm -hmm. us in a good way. Incredibly loving though. Um, so you knew you always could make a mistake and they'd give you a hug and then they'd tell you, okay, now go, go try again. Get it done. Uh, work hard. So y you end up at the Naval Academy mm -hmm. and it, it makes sense that you were in the SEAL teams, given the fact that you were uh, uh, a goalie on the on the water polo team. <laughs> but walk me through how you got to be selected for the teams. It's a funny story, Todd. I don't know if I've told you this one. I I, I went. I was recruited to the Naval Academy to play water polo. Had I not been, I wouldn't have gotten in because my grades and SATs were good, but not good enough to get into the Naval Academy. On their own merit. On their own merit. No way. Uh, but I played water polo, so I got recruited. And uh, probably halfway through my freshman year at the Academy, my plebe year, I realized that academically, this was a lot harder than I realized it was going to be. I'm struggling on my grades. I spent more time in the pool than I spent in class every week because we did a lot of training. So my decision was quit the water polo team. I'll be able to spend another eight, 10 hours a week studying so I can get my grades up so that I can become a SEAL because that's what I wanted to do. But I had been recruited to play water polo. I was a goalie, like you said, on a team, they had one other goalie. So if I quit, now the team can't scrimmage They've only got one goalie. If he gets hurt, they don't have another goalie. I'm, the team's screwed. And um, so I said, I'm not going to quit the team. I'm going to, uh, that's not the right thing to do. So I kept Let playing. The chips fall where they may. Yeah. I ended up middle of the class, graduating from the academy. But 
our senior year, they changed the criteria for seal selection. <laughs> Very different than it had ever been. And it turned into a third was based on your grades, a third was based on a PT score, and a third was based on an interview with a, a panel of SEAL officers. So I went into the panel, and I'm sitting there, and they said, series of questions. Finally, they said, we got to one. They said, you're a water pole player, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. Um, that takes a lot of time. Yes, sir. That probably, fast forward, that, you probably could have got better grades if you had quit the water pole team, huh? Absolutely. It took a ton of time. I almost failed out freshman year because I couldn't get, you know, barely got a D in chemistry. So why didn't you just quit the team, spend more time studying? Told them what I just told you. I said, I was recruited to play water polo. The team needed me. I wasn't going to do that. And I wasn't trying to give the right answer. I was just giving the honest You're answer. You being honest, yeah. Yeah. And I said that, and they all looked at each other and nodded their heads. And I thought, oh, crap, I think I just said the right thing. <laughs> is, is that the feeling you had? Oh, yeah. I was like, that was a good answer. <laughs> Anyways, I ended up getting a SEAL billet. And um, there were people that had a higher rank than me in the class, one of which who had actually quit their team freshman year, who was recruited to play and had quit their team. I knew him really well. He didn't get one. And that was the reason, because they asked him the same question. And when he said that, Same he, exact scenario. Same exact scenario. And he told me later, he said, I gave my answer, which is I wanted to focus on my grades. And they said, so you let your team down. You quit the team so you could focus on your individual grades so you could get sealed. And that didn't go well. And he didn't get a billet. That was a powerful example for a fairly young, still impressionable guy in his early 20s. Um, don't let the team down. Of course, I had learned that many times over mm -hmm. the years before that being an athlete. But, boy, that was a powerful example for me. So you, you come out of the academy. You get your opportunity to be a SEAL you uh, you succeed at that opportunity um and then you get out all together five years later in in mm -hmm. 2000 correct right so just prior to 9 11 um you you leave active duty anything significant on your your time on active duty in the in the seals that stands out to you no you know it was peacetime we were doing shipboardings in the gulf that was about it but it was it was peacetime stuff and you know um, high intensity shipboardings, Iraqi ships that were running the embargo um, in the middle of the night. We'd go board them, take the ships down, but nothing overly significant, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, I enjoyed it, a lot of stress. Um, and some of them were compliant takedowns and some of them were non-compliant, but on the, all in all, not that big of a deal. So pretty uneventful active duty period. Yeah. 9-11 um, hits, you you don't make any immediate moves, but the itch started itching more and more. But I did end up getting in the reserves. I, was, I had gotten out completely. I was in the inactive reserves. I got back in the active reserves a, a couple of years later after I graduated from business school and went to, got my first job. And then, uh, and then in 2005, I ended up going over to Iraq with the reserves. And so when you went to Iraq, what were you there to do? What was your mission? What was your role? I was a staff guy. So I was pretty senior. I was an 04 um, lieutenant commander. And my job was to be an individual augmentee on a staff in Iraq. What, what does that mean for people, an individual augmentee? Uh, so the you typically think of the military as units deploying, mm -hmm. um, platoons, task units, companies deploying all together. That's typically what happens. In a war, they have holes that they need to plug. And so they have individuals that will go and, and plug holes. So I was, a, um, I was on a staff, it was a 
special operations task force. So we had Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We were all in a in a in a base together in a building, and we were the special forces coordination for all of Iraq. And I was at the desk that handled coordination for the SEALs in, in, in Iraq. So all the SEAL missions that were happening, they'd all be run through me. So I had visibility into everything that was going on so I could coordinate with the other um, groups, the other special forces in the country. And this was what year? Uh, 05 is when I went, went around Thanksgiving. 05, okay, so you missed, and, and you were in Anbar province. I was in uh, Balad, which is about, I don't know, 50 miles north of Baghdad. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot going on at that time, though. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you missed both Fallujah battles. Yeah. But there was a lot of hangover from that. And it sounds like you were there during Ramadi. Mm -hmm. That's right. A lot right. going on in Ramadi. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't good. I mean, there was uh, 30, 35 U.S. soldiers dying a day on average when I was there. So it was, it was, is that right? There were that many, it was a lot. Um, it was, it was one of the higher points in the war. Yeah. As I recall, that was the number. It was a lot. So as a, as a staff officer and you're coordinating the, <clears throat> excuse me, the movements of the SEAL teams in conjunction with other special forces, as well as the mm -hmm. other ground units, what, what was a normal day for you? It was, uh, and I definitely don't want to overplay it. I won't say I was coordinating. I was more the, I was guy collecting the information just so that everybody knew what everybody's doing. I mean, cause there were times when we were going to go hit a target that night and somebody else had that same target that they were thinking about hitting. So it was, we were kind of doing deconfliction up there. Mm -hmm. We were brief, we brief every night on what the ops were for the different groups. So that if anybody saw an op and every once in a while we say, we're going to hit, we're going to hit this one. And somebody else would say, we're planning on hitting that one in a week. Can you hold off? We're still waiting to get intel from this or that. Sure, we'll back off. You guys go ahead. So it was, it was more of that. So I wasn't, I wasn't physically directing people on what to do. I was more collecting information, helping deconflict. And if, and if the groups in, if the well, team, in, in a way, there's there's a lot of leadership in that piece right there. If you look at it from yeah. a corporate standpoint. Well, 100. percent And I have this conversation a lot with people on my team. I didn't have any direct control over any of the SEAL forces in mm -hmm. country. It was all influence. And so they had, I had to help them want to communicate with me. They didn't have to tell me everything, <laughs> but I wanted them to because I could probably make their lives easier. Mm -hmm. But if I tried to take control, then they wouldn't want to tell me anything. You know what I mean? Sure. The same sure. lessons in corporate America. I have somebody on my team and I, I've been telling, he's done a, a phenomenal job. We started working together a couple of years ago and I, and he, he didn't control a lot of the stuff that he needed to get done. And I said, you're going to learn a lot about influence leadership because you're not going to control a lot of things here, but you're going to have to get multiple groups working together to get something done. And that's going to be the biggest lesson you're going to take out of this job. I mean, he's done a, a phenomenal job at it. And he, he influences people one and two levels above him in the company. The things that he comes and tells me that he got done, I'm like, oh, fantastic job. So, but, but it was very similar in Iraq. Um, I have to show my value and show my worth so that they'll want to work with me and then I can hopefully be helpful. We kind of touched on this earlier. Most people think the military is dictatorial, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. You will do this, and you're going to go here, and you guys go over here. And there is some truth to that in certain aspects. But in the special forces community... Yeah, far from that. It's far from that. Yeah. Explain to people how that works. 
I will also say, if you watch what's going on in Ukraine with the war, mm -hmm. a lot of the criticism of Russia is they are still operating as, as the U.S. military, some might say, operated 30, 40 years ago in a very top-down, you do what you're told when you're told Almost to do it. Almost longer, actually, like closer to World War II and Korea, I yeah. would say. Yeah. We give our forces on the ground, special forces or not, a lot of autonomy. The mm. Russians still do not. At least that's what I've read, and I don't have firsthand knowledge. But that's a not a good way to run a military. No. Um, not in a high-tech world like now. No way. But, yeah, so the special forces have a lot more autonomy than the average um, military unit does. And, you know, operating in that environment, you just got to be nimble and you got to build relationships quickly and show your value or you get quickly left so left behind. But again, I don't want to overplay it like I was the most important guy there because I definitely was not. <laughs> the no, guys on the ground were. Well, you tell a story about, and you kind of touched on this earlier. You tell a story about how you um, had to beg, borrow, and steal to get home. Mm -hmm. And you kind of related that to your father's journey from Ellis Island, actually from, from Palestine through Ellis Island all the way to California. Yeah. Walk, walk me through that again, because that that is really a funny story yeah. in a lot of ways, but a scary story. <laughs> it was actually the trip out there to Iraq. And, you know, first time going to a war zone, so you, you don't know what to expect. And you're not deploying with a unit, it's just you. I literally got a plane ticket. I got a gun, night vision goggles, and I got a commercial plane ticket. And, uh, and I went to the air. They said, hey, you're going to Balad, Iraq. Check into the Siege of Sodaf. And here's the guy's name that you check want to check into. Check into the in. what? Uh, Siege of Sodaf, Combined Joint Special Operations Task okay. Force. Check in with this person. And, and I said, okay. So anything else? They're so like, your plane ticket's going to get you to Bahrain. Go find the seals in Bahrain, there's a unit there. And it, that was kind of it. So I get on a plane, I end up in Bahrain, I go to the, <laughs> I go to the unit, it's like 6.30, nobody's there. Okay, I'll, I'll go find somewhere to sleep for the night. I go find the, the bachelor officer's quarters to sleep there. But the whole thing, there's nothing scripted. They didn't tell me a day to be there. They didn't tell me how to get there. So I go the next day, they said, yeah, there's a plane leaving. Uh, there's a plane leaving today at 4.30. There's another one leaving at like 8.30 in the morning. I said, they, I said, which one should I get on? Which one do you want to get on? <laughs> okay, I'll take the one tomorrow morning. I was going to go out with my friend that night who happened to be there. I end up in Baghdad on an airstrip in Baghdad. I get off the plane. Hey, does anybody know how to get to Balad? Balad? Where's that? And then I just keep asking around and finally I find a helicopter that's going to Blot. I end up on the airbase. Hey, can somebody give me a ride to this place? And it was the special forces part of the base. And most people on the base didn't know where that was because um, we, we were right next to the trash dump. And so they always said, just ask them to take you to the trash dump. And so I asked somebody to take me to the trash dump. Finally, I asked a couple times that they take me to the Siege of Sodaf and nobody knew what that was. I said, can you take me to the trash dump? I'm like, yeah, kind of out of my way, but I'll take you to the trash dump. So I went to the trash dump, went to the gate, and the guy pointed. The, that, that was like just how you got there. And then everything there was like that because I wasn't with a unit. So every time I needed to go to Baghdad or I needed to go to Anbar, it was you just kind of figure it out. You don't complain about it. It's just the way it is. Did you ever get into a, a vehicle with or a, a aircraft or some kind of mode of transportation with somebody that you really didn't know for sure. Oh yeah. 
that was the right move? I got a ride to an airport one time from a, I was at a, a forward operating base with, with um, Army SF guys, and the next day they said, uh, I said, can you take me to the, to the embassy? Because I've heard there's a helicopter going from the embassy up to Balad, and I need to get back to where, my home. And they said, yeah, sure. Um, we'll give you a ride. Um, the cops will be here at about 7, the local police, and they'll give you a ride. And I laughed because I thought he was kidding because the local police in Iraq are corrupt, very yes. corrupt. And so I thought he was kidding. And then sure enough, I go outside at 7. It's me and an army, one of the, another army guy, and there's a bunch of police trucks out there. Um, Hilla SWAT, they were called. And uh, like, you know, pickup trucks with guns mounted on the back and guys in full ball clobbers. Like Toyota and pickup trucks? Toyota pickup trucks, yeah. And I, I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, this might be my last day on earth because I see what they, the local police do when they get a hold of Americans. <laughs> I'm going to end up on a video, you know, not to joke about it, but I may end up on a video here. And I went back inside and I said, seriously, these guys are cool. And they said, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. They're good guys. They're, and, we're and friends. who is this that's telling you, don't worry about it. It's cool. It's the army SF guys. I, okay. I had spent right. the night there cause I was like hopscotching my way around trying to get back up to my base. And so I spent the day and the night there and you know, they were in the middle of town on this little this little bait this little it, they were basically it was like a big old um call it like a mansion it was one of saddam's old sm smaller homes and okay and they yeah. had turned it into a fob but it was really small and you know you come in and you get the inbrief on here's where the rockets here's the grenade launchers and if we get hit you go over here because we usually get hit once a month and so you get the whole inbrief sure. and you realize this is very much not a friendly part of town and then the local police show up to give you a ride and I'm thinking, okay, I, I just learned this is not a good part of town and now you're telling me to get in a police car. <laughs> so we get in the and, car. And, and, and you Army SF guys like to play jokes on us. So uh. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay, but thankfully I'm with an Army guy in the back of the pickup truck. We get in the pickup truck. They turn around. They said, take your helmets off, please. So we take the helmets off. Now kind of crouch down in your seat so hopefully can't really tell your Americans. I'm like, look at me. <laughs> I'm clearly an American. And then, and then the last thing he says before we leave is he says, hey, hey, down at your feet. And I had noticed there was like five RPG rounds in the baseboard um, that I had my feet on top of. And he says, hey, hey, if something goes down, just hand them out the window to the guy in the back. He's got the RPG launcher. And I'm like, this is like a fucking circus. Are you kidding me? But he was dead serious. And I turned to the guy next to me, the army guy. I'm like, what do you think? He's like, fuck, I hope we make it, man. <laughs> but it was just another day in Iraq. <laughs> it was pretty funny. And they hauled through town. They were flying. And, I'm, you know, hopefully we don't get killed in the car crash. But I'm like, boy, you guys drive fast at one point. They're like, yeah, it's harder for them to shoot at us when we're going really fast. Oh, my God. The whole thing was hilarious. I have a picture that I keep at home. I don't have a lot of pictures from Iraq, but I keep that one of me and the guys. Uh, the Iraqi guys that gave me a ride to the airport—it's too, it's too funny. Oh, to this day, so I haven't told my wife the—I haven't told my wife that story to this day. Well, she might hear it. <laughs> yeah, she might hear it now. But when I got home, you know, I had been telling her the whole time. Yeah. I never leave the base. Everything's fine. Same with my my, my dad. I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. I never leave the base. Really safe here. Nothing to worry about. And then the story started coming out. She's like, oh, thank God you didn't tell me all that stuff. I'm like, yeah. Again. You were protecting her. Yeah, relative to the people on the front lines every day i had it i had it great like i said i was one of the safest safest people in iraq 
Oh my gosh, that that is so funny though. It's comical stuff, and it, and even when I was there, I was looking back on it and laughing. I have a lot of funny stories, just just funny stuff that happened. So, if you were to kind of take everything that you talked about there, you know, your time in in uh, in Iraq. I mean, it was it was unusual. It was different. It wasn't a uh, a, a normal journey for for a Navy SEAL. How would you? kind of put that into um, a nice little box that has a, a, a pretty little name on it. What, what kind of lesson did you take away from all that? <laughs> That's hard, Todd. Um, you know, I've always thought of myself, I'm just a normal guy. Uh, I've had some unique experiences but they don't make me more special or, or, or different than anybody else. I'm, I'm not any better than anybody else. I just have unique experiences like we all have. And, uh, and I sure have it good in life in general. I guess that's how I put it in a box. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It just, I mean, what I'm, it is funny at work a lot. Didn't I start to interrupt you at work? A lot of people, you know, like, I work at AT&T and we had a uh, years ago, a few years back, we had one of our offices get bombed. They, a guy parked an RV out front and blew it up and it took down the office and we had, it was a big outage in the middle of the country, really big. And uh, I remember somebody saying to me, like, you're always so calm, Chris, like you don't get flustered, you, you know, feathers don't get ruffled. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm tense right now, but but in the end, I always remind myself, no one's shooting anything at me. No one's trying to kill me. Um, I got it pretty good right now. So I think that's a keep great it all lesson. in perspective, keep right? Keep it in perspective. Yeah. Be humble and keep it all in perspective. Well, you've been a, a good friend to carry the load for a long time. Um, one of our, certainly one of our bigger champions. And, um, you know, we always like to remind people the purpose of carry the load you know, about honoring those who never got to take off the uniform. Um, yeah. And every year you're right there in the thick of things with, you know, on Memorial Day. So who are you carrying this year? Oh, man, great organization. Um, I love what I love what Carry the Load does. Y'all are true patriots. And uh, I love how big it's grown uh, because getting that word out is really important. It's the... Uh, it's the one time a year my kids know that they'll see dad cry is uh, during carry the load. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm usually carrying the same group of guys, you know, Eric and Doug and Rock, just good buddies of mine that uh, they made the ultimate sacrifice, uh, selfless warriors who just wanted to do the right thing for the country and for their uh, brothers and sisters. So will you say their names again for us? Yeah, Eric. Rock, Doug, Keith is another one. Is that Doug Zembeck? Yeah, Zembeck. Yeah, yeah. Doug was Doug and I were good friends. We we were all uh, classmates at the academy. We used to hang hang out and do a lot of stupid stuff together. <laughs> we had a good time. Yeah, Doug was a great man. There was an article written about him in the local paper when he was in Fallujah, and he he talked about how he. Uh, this actually left a big impression on me. I was in corporate America at the time, but it left a big impression on me. He went to. Uh, he was at a funeral for one of his guys in Fallujah and he had a lot, you know, he was in the Battle of Fallujah, so he had a lot of um, casualties. 
and he was at one of the funerals one day and he said he 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 started crying but he made it a point to let his guys see him crying um, which is not typically what you think of when you think of military guys right not what you see in the movies um, but that's a that's a that's a heartfelt selfless humble leader he said it's important for my men to know I, this is how much i care about them and and i cry for every one of them and their families and uh, just a great guy you know showing that softer side of you is okay got to be firm got to be disciplined hold people to a high standard but there's nothing wrong with showing the softer side sometimes uh, he was a great guy a lot of lessons this has been great I really enjoyed it. Tom. This this has been great. I um, I don't know that I've laughed this much <laughs> in in one of uh, in one of these. But man, thank you for taking the time. It's it's My been. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.